So occasionally I'll get the question from someone asking what the unpardonable sin is. Oftentimes when that question comes up, there is something in their past, uh, something where they are carrying extreme guilt, and while they may have asked God for forgiveness, which he is true and just to give, oftentimes folks who are asking this question are riddled by guilt something that still lingers in their lives. And the question is, could it be that because I have guilt, I committed the unpardonable sin? And then on top of that, when you're riddled with guilt, what could be worse than knowing about God's judgment for sin, wanting to be forgiven, but feeling as though you are outside the realm of possibility for God's forgiveness? So this morning, we're going to cover this small section in Mark where Jesus warns us about the unpardonable sin. And we're just going to walk through the passage and make observations and ask questions about it. I'll give you the points as we go. Simply, the first point is more or less a handle for us, the context of the passage. What is the context of this passage, especially if you weren't with us last night? As we've studied in Mark, we have seen the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And one aspect of his ministry has been the supernatural healing of people and the casting out of demons. People have seen this. They've witnessed it with their eyes. Earlier in chapter 3, verse 11, we saw that people were pressing in on Jesus because they wanted him to heal them. And in the midst of this crowd that was pressing in on Jesus, there were some who had demons, demon possession. And as they approached Jesus... The demons were casting the people down onto the ground. They were falling down on the ground. And the demons were rightly saying that Jesus is the Son of God. So Jesus was being recognized for who he truly is. Now we see that later, the family, they were confused. They thought Jesus was completely out of his mind. And then the religious leaders, they have their own statement, which we'll talk about here. But the demons were right. Jesus is the Son of God. Throughout the chapter, as the crowds are following Jesus, you have the religious leaders, that is the scribes and the Pharisees. They are the elites that people listen to. They fail to see who Jesus is as the Son of God, and their hearts are growing harder and harder to him to the point that they have now conspired with a political group called the Herodians to put Jesus to death. That is chapter 3, verse 6. So you've got this group that wants to see Jesus dead. You've got this crowd that is following Jesus. You have Jesus who is working these miracles and giving credibility and validation for why these people should be listening to his message. And finally... In verse 22, the religious leaders can't handle it anymore. They blow a cork. They're forced to give an explanation for their position. And their explanation, as they give it, is almost like us watching a politician who is obviously on the losing side of an argument, but still clinging to his position hopelessly or in vain and trying to defend it, but it makes no sense. The best answer that the scribes can put forward as an explanation of Jesus being able to heal demon-possessed people is to say in verse 22, 
That man that you all are following, who's casting out demons, who's doing these incredible works, that guy, they say in verse 22, is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he's actually casting out demons. Now, some of your translations say Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dunghill. Others have Beelzebul with no B on the end, which means God of the Baals, a pagan religion. Either one, it's a derogatory term that Jesus is being associated with. And then they're following up that phrase and saying, he's doing this all by the prince of the demons. So here's their explanation. Jesus is casting out demons and setting people free from their demon possession. How is he doing that? Well, he's of Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he's doing that work. To which Jesus responds in verse 23 with this logical argument. In verse 23, he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. So you've got the kingdom, you've got the house, and you've got Satan. And he's saying, like, if these are divided these categories, you know that a realm cannot stand with divided leadership. Would Satan really want me casting his demons out of people? That makes no sense. If a president signs an executive order and a vice president cancels or rescinds that executive order, that government is divided and not doing well. So logically, the accusation that the religious leaders are bringing Jesus is doing this. He's casting out demons by the prince of demons, by Satan, who has sent the demons, makes no sense. Jesus clearly is not in league with Satan. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 27, with a parable or a picture form here, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. And so the strong man here is Satan. And the one entering the house is Jesus. And Jesus' point is that he has entered into the domain of Satan. He's exercised a power over him. He has bound him. And he is plundering his house by rescuing people who have been under the oppression of demons. And he is setting those people free. So Jesus has entered into this realm, and he has overcome the power of Satan, and he is setting people free. He's plundering Satan's goods and taking this person back and that person back and setting them free from demonic possession. So the accusation that the leaders have brought is easily dismissed by Jesus, but now it's Jesus' turn to respond to them in, in the sense of saying, here's who you are. So there's our context, verses 22 down to verses 27. But now let's move into 28 through 30 where we're asking the question, what is blasphemy of the Spirit? And we're moving into now just the second point, second handle for our sermon is simply observations from the passage observations from the passage. Okay, the first observation that we see in verses 28 and following is forgiveness. 
It's forgiveness. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, he wants that point to be right in front of us. And the way that he puts that point out in front of us is with a word that, or with a phrase that we don't ordinarily use. We don't go around saying to people, truly, I want you to understand this. But when Jesus says this in verse 28, when he says, truly, he's saying, this is concrete. I want you to get this. This is for emphasis now, what I'm about to say. And I want you to know that all sins will be forgiven of the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. So he's lasering in on forgiveness here. And we have seen this term forgiveness in the beginning of Mark, chapter 1, verse 4, where John the Baptist, it says, was proclaiming a baptism, which represents a message. And what was this baptism or message about? It was a baptism or message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John was saying to the crowds, you're walking this way, but I have a message that comes with this baptism. This message is you need to be turning from the direction that you are going. You need to be turning now because the kingdom of God is at hand. The Savior is coming. So you're saying, follow this message for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, forgiveness has this idea of sins being sent away from your account. That they're, they're completely gone off of your standing before God. All sin is committed against God. He's the one who decrees what is right and wrong. So when we sin, we're sinning against God. And he alone is the one who forgives us, who can actually remove those sins from our account. But when does that forgiveness take place? That forgiveness takes place, according to John, the baptizer, when repentance happens. When we turn from our sins and follow Jesus. And Jesus' point is that when we do repent and when we turn to God, all sins will be forgiven, including the blasphemies that we utter. So we can say this about God, which is something that I want you to be encouraged with this morning. Forgiveness is the act of sending away sin here. God is a sin-sending away God. You and I have committed sins against him. And when we do repent and confess those sins, he's faithful and just to forgive those sins. So whatever you have committed, Christian brothers and sisters, whatever you have committed, if you have repented of those sins and sought forgiveness, you may feel the consequences of those sins going with you into life. That happens, right? But the actual standing between you and God, God has looked at that sin and he's saying, I'm sending it away. Now, Pastor Mike was praying earlier in the sermon and he used this phrase that Jesus became sin for us. How does God send away our sins? He sends them away by putting them, placing them upon Jesus as our Savior and Jesus bears the punishment for our sins, the punishment that we deserve, 
and those sins are removed from our account. So even though we may have the consequences of our sins, the penalties that are associated with sins, like working on a relationship because you said something stupid and now that relationship needs to be repaired, that's a consequence for your sin. But the actual sin itself is removed from your account because it's on Jesus. In verse 28, it's not the end of Jesus' message. Up to this point, the leaders would probably be listening to him and somewhat in skeptical agreement, saying, yes, yes, that checks with our system. We, we believe in forgiveness. But it's in verse 29 that Jesus declares something new that these guys have never heard in their entire religious studies. It's nowhere found in the Old Testament, so Jesus is introducing us to something new. The second observation that we're looking at now that Jesus introduces us to is blasphemy against the Spirit. Blasphemy against the Spirit. So verse 28 says, all sins will be forgiven and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, verse 29, he says, but, hang on, wait just a minute. Whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Does verse 28 seem to stand in contradiction with verse 29 when he says, all sins will be forgiven and the blasphemies they utter, but, hang on, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Let's just talk about blasphemy for just a moment. What does it mean to blaspheme, just so we're all on the same page? It means to revile or speak slanderously about someone, to talk them down. And in this case, Jesus is speaking of blasphemy, not against God the Father or God the Son, but against God, the Holy Spirit. And you'll also notice in verse 28, when Jesus says sins will be forgiven, that is an act that God is doing to someone. In verse 29, the tense is a little different. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has, okay, in their possession, never has forgiveness. So in verse 28, it appears as though somebody is coming to God and asking for forgiveness, and the forgiveness is given. Verse 29, it's not that they're asking for forgiveness, it's just that those who do this never do have forgiveness. We'll talk about that in just a moment. There's a third observation that I want to look at, and then we're going to try to tie all of this together and make sense of it. The third observation is simply the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is mentioned here, and for just a moment, I want to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. To begin with, we can see that the Spirit is holy here. Verse 29 calls him the Holy Spirit. What makes him holy If you go all the way back to the second verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Why is the Spirit holy or set apart or completely unique? 
It's because he is divine in nature. This is God. This is the third person of the Trinity. He is God the Spirit. We see the Spirit accomplishing the purposes of God in the lives of people. Throughout the Old Testament, God has a plan for people. You look at the judges like Othniel, Gideon, Samson. The Spirit of God came to them and helped them lead along the way. You know, I thought I was doing pretty good, and that baby just reminded me how boring I can be sometimes. (laughs) I think I heard blah, 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 blah. (laughs) The Spirit of God is carrying out the purposes of God in the lives of men. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. Then, the, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Okay, so here you see just the Spirit of God coming upon people to accomplish the purposes of God. Now I want us to move forward and keep following this Spirit because he's involved in the life of Jesus. In the New Testament, we see that the Spirit brings about the conception of Jesus. Jesus is completely unique because he is the only one whom the Spirit essentially conceives. Miraculously, through the Virgin Mary, Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel said to her, that is Mary, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you And therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, that is, the Son of God. Okay, so here's the Spirit involved in the very beginning of Jesus' earthly life. You see the Spirit involved in his life as he continues on throughout his boyhood. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him. He would be a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Catch that phrase, he would have understanding. When Jesus is 12 years old, his parents take off after being at the temple. They think he's with their cousins. The cousins think he's with mom and dad. Basically, nobody knows where Jesus is. He's back at the temple, and he's sitting around with these religious leaders. He's a little 12-year-old boy having discussions with these leaders. And notice what characterizes him in Luke chapter 2, verse 47. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding. Why is that? Because the spirit of understanding was with him. You fast forward into Jesus's ministry at his baptism. Mark chapter 1 verses 10 and 11. We saw that when he came up out of the water immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit was descending on Jesus like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You see the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness to face temptation. So Mark chapter 1, verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And it was in that wilderness where Jesus was tempted by Satan, and he withstood Satan for those 40 days and 40 nights. The Spirit of God and the Word of God were leading Jesus to defeat Satan. And climactically, We see later on the Spirit of God being associated with Jesus' resurrection. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 11. That the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So throughout the whole earthly life of Jesus, the Spirit of God 
is indwelling and leading Jesus in his ministry, including his healing ministry, and including the ability to cast out demons. It was by the Spirit that Jesus was carrying out these activities of the kingdom, displaying his rule and his reign. Okay, let's move on to point number three. Let's try to bring this together, and this is just simply the unpardonable sin. We're keeping in mind that the works that Jesus is doing, these works are being done by the Spirit leading him along. But the religious leaders are claiming, no, he's not doing it by the Spirit. He's doing it by Satan. And when Jesus hears that accusation, he responds and says this, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So let's press this a little further with three questions. What exactly is the sin that Jesus is speaking of? What is this? We see Jesus, who's indwelt by the Spirit, but we see the religious leaders saying, you're not indwelt by the Spirit, you're indwelt by Satan. So here's a definition for the unforgivable or unpardonable sin. It is the hard-hearted act of attributing the work of Jesus' ministry to the power of Satan. I'll say that again. It is the hard-hearted act of attributing the work of Jesus' ministry to the power of Satan. You see that that's what's taking place here in the context. And the text says that he who does that never has forgiveness of sins, but is guilty, actually, of an eternal sin. And so Jesus is saying this to the religious leaders, and he's using hard terms, never have forgiveness, guilty of eternal sin. And in Matthew's account, it's very clear. Matthew 12, verse 32 says, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Meaning this has eternal consequences to it. God's verdict here is serious. There have been verdicts that have been handed down recently. We watched the Derek Chauvin trial. We watched the Jussie Smollett fiasco. We listen in to see what's the verdict going to be? What's going to be handed down? Well, anytime God pronounces a verdict, we want to be listening closely. And this particular verdict carries on for eternity, is what Jesus says. We're guilty of this sin eternally. And so as one author wrote, if forgiveness is withheld for eternity, guilt is sealed for eternity. So let's ask a second question. What makes this sin unforgivable? Unforgivable. What makes this sin unforgivable? Because again, in verse 28, Jesus makes this 100% statement that all sins will be forgiven and the blasphemies that they utter. 
But remember, what is associated with forgiveness in Mark? What's associated with forgiveness in Mark chapter 1, verse 4? Go ahead and take your Bible and just turn back so you see this with your own eyes. What's associated with forgiveness? Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism or a message. A message of what? It's a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What's needed for the forgiveness of sins before God is repentance. In other words, God will not be mocked by people seeking cheap forgiveness. If a man punches you in the face and asks for forgiveness, you might eventually grant it to him. If you forgive him and he smacks you in the face again and has this cocky look on his face like he enjoyed it and says, will you forgive me now? With his wrist and arm cocked back again, is forgiveness really being transacted? You know that something is wrong here when somebody is asking for forgiveness only so that they can do it again. And the point that we see in the Bible is that God's not going to be made the fool here. God knows when you are serious about sin because when you're serious about sin, you see it the way Jesus does. You confess it as God sees it and you turn from it. And when you turn from it, then God knows your heart is seeking true forgiveness. Words, that's not it. And that's why this sort of, sort of cheap, will you forgive me? With this cheesy grin on somebody's face, you're like, that doesn't make sense biblically because your heart is not where God wants it. Therefore, you can't genuinely be seeking forgiveness here. So Jesus said in Luke 17, 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And what's the condition for forgiving him? What's the condition for forgiveness being transacted? It's if he repents. You can certainly have a forgiving spirit. Don't, let me, don't get me wrong. You don't want bitterness to grow in your heart. But if that individual hasn't repented of that, there's not a genuine transaction that's taking place. So with God, his forgiveness comes to us at the point of repentance. When we see our sin, when we confess it, when we have a broken and contrite spirit, that's what repentance involves. And when he sees that, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if there's no genuine repentance, and that doesn't mean perfect repentance, but if there's no genuine repentance, then there's no transaction that takes place. And what Jesus is saying here is that it is possible for your heart to be hardened to the point that you are beyond the place of ever wanting to repent. It's not that God can't forgive the sin. It's that once you go down this particular path, your heart will never want to repent of the sin. Therefore, you don't have forgiveness. And that's how he says it here in verse 29. He has no forgiveness. So once you go down that path, your heart is hardened because Jesus in that person's mind and heart will be a guy who's simply running around Galilee doing things in league with Satan. 
And these religious leaders are guilty in that way. They despise Jesus so much, they don't want anything to do with him. They don't want any repentance. They do not desire it in the slightest bit. They despise Jesus so much that they say, we don't want you. In fact, you're in league with Satan. So third question. Why is it that blaspheming the Spirit of God is unforgivable? Why is it that blaspheming the Spirit of God is unforgivable? In John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus said this, And when he, that is the Spirit, comes, he, again that is the Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe me. What is the Spirit going to do? The Spirit of God plays the role in our lives of convicting us of sin and saying, that's not right, that's not right, don't go down that path. You see, the Father, he plans salvation The Son, he accomplished it for us by going to the cross, willfully taking the punishment that we deserve for our sins upon himself and offering his life as a free gift to us. And then he sends the Spirit. The Spirit comes to us and has that unique role of convicting us concerning our ways so that we would repent and embrace the good news that Jesus did die on the cross and take the punishment for our sins. The Spirit plays the role of convicting us deeply. But if we reject the Spirit of God, we are rejecting the one who actually convicts us and brings about that repentance in our lives. Think about it this way. Here's an oxygen tank. There's a handle that's turned on the oxygen tank. There's a line that's running from the oxygen tank to your face. And through that line, oxygen is traveling. And as long as that hose is underneath your nose, your lungs are receiving the oxygen that they need. But if you reject the oxygen line coming from the tank that has been opened up at the handle, that's filling your lungs up with air, you're rejecting the very source that makes it possible for you to breathe. If you cut off the convicting work of the Spirit in your life, by insulting his true work in the life of Jesus with the claims, it was Satan who did this, you'll be cutting off the very Spirit of God who brings about or makes it possible for you to repent. And those who do not repent don't have forgiveness of sins. That's what Jesus is telling these religious leaders. Their actions are cutting them off from the oxygen line of the Spirit to their heart. They won't turn back, and they won't find repentance then. And then consequently, no forgiveness. Okay, fourthly, implications for us today. Let's get some takeaways. Number one, in the form of a question, can this sin be committed today? Can this sin be committed today? I believe the answer is yes, but very rarely. Non-Christians, especially in our Western culture, they know who Jesus is, and because they're non-Christians, they have said no to Jesus. 
but rarely do non-Christians oppose Jesus in the same way that these religious leaders were doing in Mark chapter 3. Rarely does an opponent of Christianity actually have the kind of argument or the kind of heart that these religious leaders were posing to Jesus, insulting the Spirit of God in the life of Jesus. Most people today, when you think about it, who oppose Jesus or who do not have Jesus as their Savior, they fit in the categories that C.S. Lewis gave. Remember he gave those categories. People think that Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And if he's Lord, then we bow the knee to him, we submit to him, we believe in him as our Savior. But liar and lunatic is often where non-Christians essentially are. Like, Jesus said these things, but it wasn't true. No disrespect to your religion, but it just wasn't true. Or, Jesus was a nut, and they don't go any further than that. But some people, especially people who have grown up in religious, legalistic settings where everything is a front, and there is some biblical knowledge there, they may become so resentful of Jesus and in their hearts conclude, Jesus was a horrible man. I hate what he did. He's led people astray. And the only one that could do this is the work of Satan and Jesus. See, the world doesn't think in those categories often. But people who have grown up in religious settings like these religious leaders, they have those categories in their mind. And oftentimes, if they've rejected God, they have this deep underlying bitterness. Oftentimes, something that happened in the church in their lives and they want to throw the whole thing out, and they could label it, possibly, as a work of Satan. Now, clearly, you and I are not God. God alone concludes and judges people's hearts. But from what we are reading in Mark, these leaders are certainly in danger of blaspheming the Spirit. Their hearts have been hardened. They're at a place where repentance and the forgiveness of sins is not going to be found because they're insulting the spirit of grace. The writer of Hebrews picks up on that. So can people get to this point in their heart and say that everything that Jesus did was a work of Satan? I believe that they can, but I think it's very, very, very rare. Second question, just in terms of thinking about implications for us. How does this story here fit into the overall storyline of Mark? Okay, just another question. How does this episode fit into the overall storyline of Mark? It certainly tells us how deep the rejection of Jesus can go in the hearts of people, especially religious people. It clarifies how deep the rejection of Jesus can go in the hearts of people. Mark's gospel begins by telling us who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus' first words in Mark are, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news. That was a call to himself, where Jesus is bringing in a kingdom that has a unique power that changes lives and includes the authority to forgive sins and deliver people from their sins. And even the demons are subject to Jesus in this kingdom. So people have to make a choice as to where they stand. Will they stand with Jesus and enjoy him as their savior 
and see all of the wonderful benefits that he and his power brings? Or will they stand in opposition to Jesus and dig their heels in even deeper, wanting him out of their lives? And what's interesting here is that Jesus is not going to force anyone in or out. People will come and they will say, I want to. And people will go and say, I want to. People either believe in him as their savior, as the one who can forgive their sins, or they won't. And some will go so far as to hold that Jesus is controlled by demons. So we see that it clarifies or shows us how deep the rejection of Jesus can go, especially in the hearts of religious people. A third question is this. How should I personally respond when I believe I have the Holy Spirit? How should I personally respond when I have the Holy Spirit? Well, first, let me just say this. Don't worry. Don't be fearful. It's not uncommon for the question to come up again. Is it possible that I have committed the unpardonable sin? I think that sometimes people wonder, if the thought comes into my mind, if I even talk about it or explain it, if that thought runs through my mind that Jesus was controlled by demons or by Satan, is it possible that I am guilty of the unpardonable sin? And no, that's not the case here. If you're asking the question, am I guilty? That question comes from a heart of concern. That question comes from a heart that is being ministered to by the Holy Spirit. And you're not in danger of committing the unpardonable, unforgivable sin when the Spirit of God is working in your heart. A desire for repentance was absent in the lives of these religious leaders. And because they didn't want repentance, they would not get forgiveness. When you want repentance, you're heading in the right direction. Someone who desires biblical repentance from sin is experiencing the promise of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And any little prick that you feel throughout the day of, oh, I did that wrong or I did that wrong, and and that comes to mind, like I shouldn't have responded that way, you can just be joyful in that moment saying, wow, God has blessed me with his presence and he's still ministering and at work in my heart. I would say to Christians, do not worry. Instead, be thankful that the Spirit of God is convicting you of sin. But second, beware of the devastating effects of sin. This passage functions as a warning so I think we need to leave this passage feeling the weight of the warning. These scribes were born as cute little baby boys who made their parents smile. They weren't always the hardened men that we're reading about in Mark chapter 3. But throughout the years, they became entrenched and blind to sin in such a way that when God showed up, they went through this process They learned the verses, they knew their Bible, but somewhere along the line, that knowledge was only head knowledge and their heart was hardened so that when God showed up, they couldn't even recognize him in front of them. And sin has this this course that it takes where it plants a root in one corner of our hearts and if it's not severed, 
It has the potential to grow over the course of time in such a way that it surrounds and grabs our hearts and blinds us to the truth. It can be devastating. Sometimes we want something so badly, God won't give it to us. For the religious leaders, they wanted their way. They wanted their way, and Jesus was disrupting their way. When your way is disrupted, you either submit or you fight back so that you can have your way. And when Christ's kingdom messes with your way, the only response is to surrender to Christ's way. This passage is almost like a a blinking beware sign. Beware that you just don't walk down that path of fighting against God or else bitterness can creep in. Your love for God can be extinguished. You could begin to think God is bad. That is forgivable. You could continue to think thoughts that Jesus is bad. That is forgivable. But it's possible that bitterness and anger could go so far in someone's heart that they would say, I'm so angry at God. I don't want anything to do with him. In fact, Jesus and all the work that was carried out in his life is of the devil. But again, I don't think any Christian will ever get to that point because God secures you and your heart all the way to the end. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verses 38 and 39, he said, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what was his will? This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. When the sign says, danger, high voltage, we feel something inside of us saying, move away, move away from that. And when anger towards God in our hearts might begin to flare up, we hear this passage. And what do we do? We move away. We repent of our sin and we run to the one who protects us. Let's pray.